explicit light, you are taking the compressed essence of what it means to be a human being and expressing that in the incorrect fashion. There's no, let's put it this way. If you could use that energy to create human life, then equally so you can use that energy to do the greatest damage in the world. everybody and welcome to another episode of JTV, specifically the Jewish Wisdom segment. Um, we're extremely delighted to be joined virtually uh, by Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz, who is no stranger to JTV. We've had him on in the past and his videos have been extremely popular. So we're really, really delighted to have you uh, back again. Rabbi, how, how are you and how have you been uh, coping over the last few months? Ah, thank you very much. First of all, thank you for hosting me again on your show. I'm a great JTV admirer would like to acknowledge and praise you for your initiative in starting this program. I think it's remarkable. A real opportunity to change the Jewish world in a significant fashion. So it's an honor to be with you. Thank you very much and my compliments. Last few months have been fun. I must say my work has been relatively unaffected. On the one hand, I speak to a lot more people than I usually do because it's uh, international reach. On the other hand, it's a little bit more difficult to connect with people when you don't see the whites of their eyes. Sometimes in large groups where you don't see the faces on the screen. So, you know, there's a trade-off, but uh, so far we seem to be coping. And we've, I think we've, speaking on behalf of the JLE, I think we've leveraged this medium into um, some very powerful applications. Absolutely. I think in some ways there's been, you know, terrible suffering that's been experienced. And there's also been new opportunities which have emerged as a result of this um, complete change in dynamic. And uh, I think in some ways the world may be changed uh, for the better in terms of communication and reaching far more people than would have been done before. And thank you so much also for your uh, kind comments about JTV. They mean a lot. And the feeling of, uh, of uh, admiration is very much mutual. Um, can we start by jumping in? We've got about four or five different topics that we'd love to cover with you uh, today. Um, and I want to start with something um, which uh, I thought this, this is a virus that is separate to the coronavirus, and I thought it was something that would perhaps be less of a focus uh, as, as this whole coronavirus pandemic swept the world. But it's the other virus of anti-Semitism, which, uh, as uh, Rabbi Sachs, I think, puts it, is uh, a virus which is very, very effective at mutating. Um, you know, we Jewish people are, find themselves astonished today um, to see, I mean, just recently we've had this rapper um, musician uh, called uh, Wiley, um, who, who, who openly and proudly uh, stated uh, anti-Semitic uh, views and um, Jewish people, but also when it comes to the demonization and victimization of Israel, Jewish people feel so astonished in the aftermath of the Holocaust in this post or anti-racist world that we're now supposedly living in. Um, and the way it's mutated so effectively is that the Jewish people are now the racists, the oppressors, the committers of genocide and apartheid. Um, and so that's how it's mutated to guarantee its effectiveness today. Um, and I really wanted to, you know, because I don't believe you can explain anti-Semitism without looking at it from a spiritual perspective as well, because it is just so <laughs> impossible to explain otherwise. Why is the world so obsessed with this tiny uh, people? Um, so I really wanted to get your perspective on What's really going on? Does the Torah, does Judaism have any answers to the deeper roots of what's really happening with anti-Semitism, how we can best understand it and how we can best address it? 
Yes, with your permission, Oli, I'd like to speak rather less about this subject than others because at a very deep level, it is beyond understanding. So it's one of those subjects that silence is probably more cogent in addressing than an argument. But let's say a few things about it, uh, noting that the root of this is beyond human understanding. Um, first of all, you're quite correct. It's a, it's a virulent and uh, timeless problem. Uh, completely unreasonable, completely unreasonable. I, let, me, let me hasten to add when I say unreasonable, I don't mean that Jews don't often do things that provoke anti-Semitism unnecessarily. Let's not forget that. There's some things that we, we uh, um, there's standards that we could raise our standards in many ways, which, are, which would be correct in their own right and would deflect some of the anti-Semitic element. Let's look to our own faults first before we, before we lash out. There's no question about that. But I can assure you that even if we behave perfectly uh, or virtually perfectly, there would still be this, this problem in the modern world. And it's a completely intractable and unreasonable problem. As you say, first of all, we're a tiny shred of humanity. Um, that's true. On the other hand, we've not had a tiny shred of effect on humanity. Let's not forget that either. We are the ones who brought the modern Western tradition of morality to the world. The three great Western religions are solidly based on us. The Far East is something different entirely, discussion for another time. So although we are uh, tiny, we're certainly punching above our weight in terms of international effect. They're quite correct about that. When they say the Jews are involved in everything, and in one sense the Jews want to take over the world, there's a truth in that. Not the way they think. We wouldn't like to take over the world in their political system, but we'd certainly like to take over the world by foisting our morality and values on the world. No question about that. And the non-Jewish world knows that, and of course that's correct. Um, as Rabbi Sachs, you quoted, he put it very well. It's not religion that's the problem. He said it's bad religion that's the problem. And he's quite right about that. Uh, second point is, not only are we small, but just as an indicator or measure of the anti-Semitic issue, I think you can look at Israel. You know, they fuss about, about Israel, right? Just, just to give you one small dimension of insight, they would like to make a two-state two solution in Israel. I would like to ask you, <laughs> where will you fit the second state? You know, Israel is small enough that you can run across it in a day. You know that if you jog at a leisurely pace, you will cross it in a day. I mean, I used to live in, uh, in Telstone, which is just a few kilometers from Jerusalem, and it used to take me 45 minutes to, to drive to the sea, which is Tel Aviv. You know, you can easily run across the country in a day, uh, and you can drive the length of the country in a few hours. You know, I happen to be South African, Oli. And the way I think about it is that you could comfortably fit Israel into the Kruger National Park. <laughs> you know, so you're talking about a tiny sliver of land. And despite that, the Israelis are, many Israelis are prepared to co consider countenance a two-state solution, which is absolutely remarkable. I mean, it's, you, look at the, you look at the five Arab countries surrounding Israel, you know, there's enough space to absorb the Palestinians without noticing it. But it's Israel who has to sacrifice its land for the Palestinians. So, you know, it's, it's completely disproportionate, the, the amount of fuss and bother about a tiny sliver of land, which is uh, clearly, if any country has a historical, if any nation has a historical claim on the land, it certainly has to be us. I mean, we have a far more solid claim on the land than the Australians or the Americans or, or anyone else, no question about that. So, yes, it's intractable, inveterate problem. It is uh, unreasonable. Uh, it's lethal, dangerous. It mutates all the time. I saw recently a survey done among Eastern European teenagers. Do you know that 20% of them have never heard of the Holocaust? 20% of, of Eastern European Polish teenagers in a high school classroom 
not only not taught about it officially, have never heard about it, which means, very clearly and very frighteningly, I'm talking about a modern survey here done recently, this means that you have a monster about to raise its head, not even laboring under the guilt and awareness of what happened 80 years ago. You know, if you're talking about, if you go back to my youth when I was a teenager, so the German people who were very concerned about uh, reparations money and uh, there was a tremendous emotion of guilt among the children and grandchildren of those people. Today, you're dealing with a generation that doesn't have that at all, which means a completely fresh renewal of the same anti-Semitic emotions that you had then. That's a very, very scary issue. Now, I agree with you that it's a spiritual problem, and to discuss it more thoroughly, we'd have to go into spiritual and indeed Kabbalistic sources to understand this unreasonable fear and hatred of the Jewish people. But it's important for Jews to know, I think, that this is something that will not be solved on a political level. Let me hasten to add, we need political defense as well. We need, we certainly need military and political advocacy. There's no question about that. And I, I also would not hesitate to say that historically the Israelis have been pretty bad at that. Uh, part of a Middle Eastern mentality. And uh, it's only in the, late, in the later years that Israel has paid attention to its political image and to its um, uh, international justification for its existence and, and actions. And that ha carries that as a two-edged sword. On the one hand, we have to do it, and we have to do it well. On the other hand, it's a very deep pain that a country like Israel has to put out a publicity program just to justify its existence. I mean, is there any nation on earth, any country on earth that has to justify its very existence to the International Committee? I mean, that is awesomely, awesomely prejudiced. So in summary, this is an, a problem that's not going away anytime soon. Secondly, it's certainly a spiritual question. All the attempts to explain the Holocaust on, you know, political, sociological lines are all fall, fall short, and that applies to modern anti-Semitism as well. Thirdly, the practical side must not be forgotten. We need advocacy. We need good advocates and representatives. We need to up our game in terms of our own inner morality and our own. We need to be cleaner than clean and seen to be clean. Uh, it should be taken by us as a stimulus to act in an exemplary moral fashion, live up to our standards of our own religion. Right? Uh, uh, there's no question about that. How much of the edge that will take off modern anti-Semitism is not clear. But those are clearly the things we have to do. And finally, probably, I think you summed it up. It's a spiritual problem, and there has to be a spiritual solution. In other words, uh, not to be surprised and not to be disarmed by an, a, a genocidal hatred, not to rest on our laurels. I heard someone say recently, you know, the existential threat to Israel is over now. It's a strong country, etc. <laughs> that, that's a terrible misperception. You know, let, let alone the development of nuclear weapons in the vicinity Israel has always labored under a totally existential threat. I mean, the, the agenda of the enemies is not just a piece of land, it's total genocidal extinction. I mean, that's on their, that's on their books. And a uh, first line of defense, I think, has to be a deep spiritual awareness and an awareness that the issue is spiritual, which boils down in, 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 in my field to what we call outreach, that is deep spiritual education of the Jewish people. And we believe at the deepest level that the solution will come from a different, another dimension. Mm. Absolutely. And what do you say to people that, you know, you were speaking earlier about the importance of um, we should always look to improve our own national standards and moral standards as well, even if, you know, even if anti-Semitism is entirely or largely irrational, there's always, it's always good to self-reflect. 
What do you say to people who, who you know, you spoke earlier about um, what people say about Israel and perhaps that it can't be good for our national soul to be occupying another, another people. Do, do you, sometimes there can be so much, uh, you know, confusion between what are legitimate uh, complaints and grievances made and what are just being fueled by anti-Semitism. H- how do you sort of, how can you s- separate the two and, cl- and, and clarify the two? Do you think there is even something valid to that? You know, do you think people, we should um, always be looking to extend the hand of peace in the Middle East and that kind of stuff? Because um, if you just assign everything to being anti-Semitism, then sometimes it can lead to a lack of self-reflection. No, indeed, you're quite correct about that. But uh, let me just say one small point. If you're asking me about the Palestinian and Israeli political Middle Eastern situation, I, I suggest you a very, a very important tool that your, your listeners or your viewers could bear in mind. And I think it's simply a question of reframing. Uh, let, me, let me tell you what I mean, and I hope you and your, your, your viewers will find this useful. I, uh, I was traveling someplace uh, some time ago when one could still travel, and I saw a book... Um, a very violently pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli Israeli book. And the book began by highly educated Muslim authors. Uh, the book began, the frontispiece was a map of Israel. And the map showed, you know, the extent of Israel from top to bottom. And it showed a tiny Palestinian enclave of, or the, 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 the small, small Palestinian areas. And the map was designed to show a tiny embattled uh, minority surrounded by a massive, powerfully organized, you know, military presence, um, you know, the cruelest and most bullying fashion, um, you know, imaginable. So there's your picture. You have, the, you have the entire picture of Israel, a tiny enclave of some dispossessed and, uh, you know, unarmed and, and totally vulnerable people who could be snuffed out, you know, at, at a moment of whim by the Israelis. How do you deal with that sort of perception? And I would suggest to you that you, you, you acknowledge it, and they say they're quite correct. Quite correct. And here's, here, here's how I would, let's say I would, I would, I would, I would uh, challenge to give a lecture to, a, to an anti-Semitic and anti-Israel audience who, ha- who put up a poster of that on the wall and, and triumphantly showed it to me. You know, what do you say about that? I would take their poster, put it up in front of the hall, and then I would continue to draw the map of the whole Middle East around it. And what you would see is a massive swathe of territory inhabited by five, six hundred million people and a tiny speck of embattled, you know, people uh, surrounded by, you know, well-organized armies with endless funds. In other words, their map is totally correct. They just got it at the wrong scale. You know, if you look at a map like that and you see this tiny, almost unidentified sliver of land, as big as I said, as a, a national park in South Africa, surrounded by some of the biggest territories on earth, all with unlimited funds, weaponry, um, developing nuclear weapons, you know, with a declared intention to wipe you out instantly. Not, not subtle, not, you know, not, not couched in political niceties, totally on the agenda of their, you know, their constitutions. I mean, I think you'd forgive the people living there for feeling a little threatened, you know, and to have a little, a little justification for their, even if they would be cruelly turning, turning on such a minority within their midst, even if that would be true, I, I think, and I think of reframing the discussion like that is a logical is a logical approach. Will this have an effect on the audience? Will they say, "Oh, you're right. We shouldn't be behaving this way." I don't think so. But I think the Jews need to be articulate. You need to, you know, if you reframe a thing correctly, right? 
And then, of course, you could, then they would say, well, Palestinian land and it's their land. Well, let's examine our land and, and our claim to the land. You know, so I think that when it comes to logical, logical presentation, we shouldn't fall short on that either. But as I say, we shouldn't be too invested in it. That will not bring the final, uh, will not win the debate on that level. And can I ask, what percentage of people do you think can be, can change their attitude of, of, of Jews and the Jewish people and Israel based on logic? And to what extent do you just you say... Th- did you ask me what percentage change we can make? Yes, because in, in other words, when you deal with people who are buying into anti-Semitic tropes, it sounds like what you said previously, the majority of your feeling is that this is just something that is deeper than logic. So in other words, what, how much should we, how much emphasis should we place or put our hope in defeating anti-Semitism with logic? So, oh yeah, I think very little indeed, but I think that doesn't justify not speaking up in logical and cogent fashion. Uh, there are two, a couple of reasons. The first reason is that there are people on the fence. There are reasonable people around the world who are on the fence. There are reasonable people around the world who don't think very deeply or are very influenced by the media storm against us on all levels. Um, and I'm sure we could make a difference. Would it be insignificant difference or a significant difference? There's no telling. But certainly silence is taken as acquiescence. I think that's wrong. When there's a moral position to be made, I think you have a duty to, to make that point, uh, even in the face of, 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 of cruel enemies who will not register it. We should never be accused of having condoned a situation or tacitly accepted something. I think this is an important rule. You know, when, when parents are dealing with a child who's acting out and misbehaving, not following the rules of the family, and the parents know that the child is going through an immature phase where no amount of argument will, will succeed, it's still very important to make the correct moral points. They'll come home to roost at some point. And therefore, when you have a correct moral situation, a correct moral statement needs to be made and a correct justification at the same time as an open admission of where we're wrong. Absolutely. Why not? When we make mistakes, if we do things that are that are wrong and when, whether they're Israeli military mistakes or political mistakes or absolutely we don't claim to be perfect. I think it's a sign of strength to make those admissions, but at the same time to make a very cogent presentation of what's right about us. And one final point, if I may, since you since this discussion is your fault and not mine. I would say this, there's nothing more odious than Jews denouncing Israel outside Israel. Let me be clear about that. There's nothing more offensive than Jews denouncing Israel outside Israel. You want to criticize the Israeli government? Let me hasten to add, I'm no supporter of Israeli governmental and secular policies. I'm not, that's not the point. The point is, it's the homeland of the Jewish people. And it's totally existentially necessary and totally existentially vulnerable. We saw that so powerfully so recently. You know, there's still, it's still living memory. You can go back to that. And therefore, a Jew to get up on the streets of London and denounce, make pro-Palestinian and anti-Israeli statements in the non-Jewish. First of all, it looks so ridiculous. What kind of a traitor? What kind of a person sells out his own family? No, whether, no matter whether they're right or wrong. If you disagree with Israeli morality, and politics, by all means, go there and, and, and rail against it in, in, the, in the streets and as vocally as you wish. Take part in it and try to make a change. Absolutely, you can be as, 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 as vocal as you like. But to get up in the streets of the secular world, the non-Jewish world, and denounce your own people and your own homeland, I mean, it's just such a... It's, it's beyond understanding to, to, to see the demonstration of such treachery. Again, again, that doesn't mean you support them on every issue that you consider to be a mistake or immoral. But there's just a certain loyalty to family that should be obvious. 
I, I actually heard someone say to me, uh, an uh, uh, excellent uh, Israel advocate, he said that he often explains that that kind of action from some Jewish people as a as a way in which someone might respond to an abusive partner. Some some stand up and fight against. Some say some stay silent, and other people justify the actions. So instead of he sometimes feel he says, you know, I'm not so sure in what they're doing is treachery, but perhaps it comes from internalized trauma of you know generations of anti-Semitism that they end up just justifying. The anti-Semitism. Well, yeah, I would not like to venture an opinion about the psychology of people who do that. I think it's uh, whatever the psychology may be. I think it's offensive and unjustifiable. I just wanted to finish this by asking: You said it's a spiritual problem. Ultimately, are there any practical spiritual things that we can do in response? Uh, it, we can sum it up in one word as tshuva, which means coming back to our genuine Jewish identity. That is a genuine Jewish cultural, religious, deep spiritual attachment. Uh, you can sum it up as the word tshuva, and if you like, you can sum it up as the word God. Now, I don't think we'll have success overnight convincing the Jewish secular masses about that. We might, we, we may make some progress in showing them that it's certainly not in human hands. I don't have to remind you that there are four or five individuals around the world who uh, hold the power to annihilate, basically, the known world with nuclear you know, the Holocaust. Uh, and I think it's near miraculous that over some bottle of vodka or some drunken Washington or Moscow party, you know, it hasn't happened yet. Anybody with any sense should see the vulnerability at that level. If that doesn't make you believe in God holding things back, I don't know what will. The next topic is actually about something that's arisen over the last few years, which is identity politics. I think this actually, I started to think about this over 10 years ago when David Cameron became Prime Minister. And one thing that I heard people who were arguing against him were saying was, he has no right to govern this country or make it better because he's never really seen, you know, economic hardship. He went to Eton, he's had a privileged lifestyle. And more recently in cases of racism, people have been saying, uh, you know, you can't comment on my experience of racism or sexism or whatever because you're not a woman or you're not, uh, you know, BAME. Um, and so some people say, well, that's, that's fair enough. You can't comment on someone's group experience if you're not past them. But on the other hand, people say, how could you ever expect people to learn? Uh, we don't apply that when it comes to someone learning about cancer to try and find a cure. You don't have to have experienced cancer yourself. And so I just want to ask it from a Torah perspective, because I was just thinking recently about the fact that the greatest Jewish leader of all time, Moshe, Moses, who redeemed, the, brought the Jewish slaves out of slavery, himself grew up in luxury and was never himself a slave. And I thought, oh, that's quite an interesting point. So what, what, what does the Torah have to say about this question of leadership, understanding suffering and identity politics? Okay, this is a very good question. First of all, I don't think I'm the last word on this. I think you can make an argument on both sides and I think both sides have a validity to them. I would like to suggest that one could argue that without having been through a certain trauma or disadvantage or suffering or identity trauma, one can empathize uh, in a very, a very real way. I'd, I'd like to suggest that is true. 
I've no doubt that some of your challenge is correct, that no matter how much you empathize and no matter how big a person you are, you're probably missing something if you haven't been through the experience yourself, probably. I personally feel that having not been through the experience itself, you might have some advantages too, although they're probably outweighed by the disadvantages. But I would say this, I say even if we concede that a person who's not been through a particular trauma or identity trauma is lacking because of that, I don't think it invalidates them from playing a role in uh, advancing the cause of people at that level. And let me give you a few examples and try to con convince you that this is true. But I wouldn't be stubborn about this, Ollie, and if any of your viewers differ, I don't, uh, I would, you know, I would be open to hearing a different view. I don't think this is, uh, that I have the monopoly on the, the correct insight into this. First of all, let's take your example. I'll give you two historical examples that I think are, are salient. One is Moses, as you said, quite correctly, brought up in privilege, raised as a Egyptian prince, and then has to identify with the slaves. Uh, in fact, the problem's worse than that. He was actually part of the priestly caste, as you know, and not only was he privileged living in the, in the palace, but all the Kohanim, the Levim, were not actually enslaved during the Egyptian, uh, Egyptian ordeal. Um, so that is quite correct. Um, on the other hand, he certainly knew who he was. There's no question that he knew who his family, his parents were. He was, he was nursed and suckled by his mother. Uh, you know, so there's no question that he grew up fully aware of both identities. I think he suffered, a, in modern terms, he probably suffered a schizoid trauma at a different level. That means having to choose with whom to identify. Now, on the one hand, he was privileged and had a tremendous, must have had a debt of gratitude to the Egyptian elite that had saved him and educated him and trained him in leadership and kingship. On the other hand, he certainly knew who his parents were and what they were going through in their view. You know, there's no question that the Kohanim, even though they may not have been enslaved in the formal sense, they were certainly part of the trauma of the Egyptian experience. You may or may not know that when he went out and was faced with his ordeal, his first ordeal of identity, the crisis of identity, watching an Egyptian beating a Jew, and he was challenged to take sides, you probably know that the Torah says, He looked this way and that way, and the simple interpretation is he looked around to see if anyone was watching before he defended the Jew and in some fashion defeated or slew the Egyptian. But there's a well-known interpretation that means this. He looked this way and that way. In other words, he deeply looked into his own crisis of identity. Which one would he side with? He looked to the Moses who was the royal Egyptian prince, with he had a deep allegiance and gratitude. And he looked deeply into the side of the, of the traumatized sufferer, you know, that, and I'm, I, I have no doubt that is true. And I think both of those sides added something to his leadership skills and his deep ability to empathize with both sides. And you see clearly that the historical truth is that he became the person that he'd be probably the greatest human being who ever lived, despite not having gone through the trauma in the conventional sense. The second example I was going to give you was from Gautama Buddha. And uh, why, not, why not do a little self-promotion? So give me a moment to show you my book on the subject. I wrote a book some time ago about Buddhism and Judaism. So here you have the, uh, here you have a copy letters to a Buddhist Jew, myself and David Gottlieb, who's a very wonderful, I don't know if you can see that picture. Yeah. But David Gottlieb is a very wonderful uh, uh, Chicago Jew who was deeply involved in Buddhism, in fact, ordained as a Buddhist teacher, very special and wonderful individual. And the two of us published that book. If you speak French, you can get the book in French. Uh, and we're doing other languages now as well, Spanish and so on. But this book goes into, and I mention this because there's a very interesting historical parallel. 
something like a thousand years after the story of Moses that you mentioned, is a very interestingly parallel story about the Buddha. He was a Hindu prince living in the palace, had never seen suffering, was totally unaware of suffering, lived a charmed and gifted life in his father's palace. And when he was a young man, happened to chance outside the palace walls unofficially and came across the suffering of the world. Right. And identified with it and left to become a itinerant and a, and a, and a mystic and a teacher and venerated as a, a great teacher of humanity. So very interesting parallel. A, a, a prince of privilege identifying with the world of suffering, definitely an echo of the biblical story itself. And uh, it's very well known, and if you have any uh, background or exposure to Buddhism, you'll certainly know that it's a deeply empathic path, where despite the fact that he was, um, and I think they would argue that because of his privilege, he was able to be shocked into an empathy. You know, if he'd grown up, grown up in that as reality, who knows if he would have had that sensitivity. But imagine a, imagine a person living in the kind of privilege where you don't step on the floor without them putting a priceless carpet under your foot. And then you go out and you see the trauma of unnecessary starvation and brutality in a world soaked in blood. What would that do to somebody who had that background? I think you could argue that there might be a very powerful sensitizing uh, effect that might not have happened had you been raised. Had you been. So I think you can argue the case both ways. Let me say this. As a doctor, this question is often raised. They say, you know, doctor, how can you empathize with somebody who has cancer if you've not been through it? Or a more common example is, how can you empathize with an addict? And how can you be a therapist dealing in addiction uh, treatment when you haven't actually been there yourself and known the vulnerability and the depth of attraction to the, uh, to the, to the, the substance? And the, the usual response to that is, well, do you expect every therapist to be an to be an addict, do you have to go through that? Do you have to have been that? Is that necessary? And common experience cl shows clearly that, that, that that's not necessary. If you challenge me and say, are the best therapists indeed those who've been through it? That's quite possible. Yes. I've come across quite a few people in my professional career who are suffering very serious addictions of one form or another. And it's very, it's very powerful to hear their story and to hear the, um, when, they, when they highlight the vulnerabilities. And they issue the warnings to the people they work with. It has a certain credibility that that you just don't find among among people who haven't been there. I think that's true. However, the field acknowledges very clearly that people who have not been through those experiences, but have spent a lifetime, shall I say, wallowing or or uh, steeped in those issues, can certainly be extremely insightful and empathic. I mean, I, I I've had the privilege of meeting a number of times Rabbi Tversky, one of the world's great alcohol and drug addiction experts with a remarkable story, a Hasidic Rebbe who's a psychiatrist. I, I never forget the experience of him telling his own story and his own personal, you know, medical soul experiences coming from a Hasidic, well, fascinating story. Mm. When you hear his level of empathy and identification and wisdom uh, gathered over many years of working with people in the field, what is he doing? He's calling on his own personal issues, even though they may not have been addiction issues. But, you know, if you've been through any sort of bullying or trauma, you can enlarge that experience and connect it with a, with a different experience you might not have been through. That's part of intellectual maturity. And there's no question that people like that can become experts, and the proof is in the pudding. You know, the, the experience that they've had and the, the success they've had in their fields, even though they've not been necessarily through the same, the same trauma. And finally, I'd like to say this. It's part of spiritual maturity to be able to empathize. Let me put it to you this way, um, Ollie. You know, at a very deep level, you can only love yourself. 
Just like you can only know yourself intimately, you can really only love yourself. How do you love someone else? The wrong way is to develop an I-thou relationship, I love you. That's not correct. Not only is it not correct, but it often ends up in a very immature love of self. Namely, I love you because you make me feel good, which really means I love you. As the great Bala Musa said, it's like saying, I love fish. You know what you mean? You're going to kill it and grill it and eat it. And you say you love it. If you really love the fish, you'd put it back in the water and let it swim back to its mother. You don't mean you love the fish. You mean you love you and you're ready to kill for that. When a man says to a woman, I love you, and he means you make me feel good, that is not love at all. That is mercenary, you know, relationship. That has a word in, in the, you know, relating to one of the oldest professions in the world, which I'm not going to mention, but that's business or worse. Real love is love of self expanded to include another. Real love means I, I love myself deeply and richly, and I regard you as part of myself. When a man says he loves a woman because he understands his being extends into her, she's a part of his own being. A Jewish marriage is a reconstitution of an original oneness in the spiritual world. You found your other half and bonded back with it. Or to give Rav Destler's classic example, that parents always love their children more than the children love the parents. Parents always love their children more than the children love their parents because you extend into them. You've given into them. Don't love what you get. You love what you give. Our generation are trained that you love what you get. Someone makes you feel good, you love them. That is a very mistaken notion. If you give yourself to somebody unconditionally, you love them. And let me hasten to say this. There's a wrong psychological understanding and some transmitter of Desla's teaching like this inaccurately. Like this. If I invest myself in you and give myself to you, of course I love you. You're part of me. It's a self-love. In other words, I've given myself to you. I've worked very hard for you. Therefore, I love you because it's a way of loving myself. That can be said very wrongly. Here's the correct way. I love you because you are me. Not because when I've extended myself into you and I see yourself as a part of myself, when I see my child as an extension of myself and I love them as I love myself, that's exactly the, when a student, when a teacher has a student and they pour their creative energy into their student and the student develops and develops way beyond the teacher. The teacher sees himself or herself in that student and correctly so and there's become a oneness. The Hebrew word for love is ahava. It has two fascinating characteristics, that word. It's based on hav, which means to give. And secondly, it adds up to 13. Exactly the same number as the word echad, which means one. When two have become one, of course there's a love, much deeper than I love you. You've become part of me. A more mature person can love not only a spouse, but children as well, and a broader family. A bigger spiritual person can love the neighborhood as well. A person bigger than that can love the Jewish people and take whatever happens to the Jewish people very personally. Somebody bigger than that can feel for all of humanity in a genuine fashion. A person spiritually mature will hear about suffering anywhere in the world. It will hurt them personally. You are not a mature human being if you can hear of human suffering someplace and not identify with it. And somebody bigger than that can feel the suffering of the world. As the mystics call it, the suffering of the Shekhinah. That means when humans are suffering, they think, how does God, how's God feeling about his children going through this? And they can feel the pain of the Shekhinah. Now, you can't fake that. You have to be a big person to do it. And today you'll find it's very unusual for someone even to feel one other person's suffering. But a real love is an extension into self. You know, when I moved to Israel, I joined a medical practice there run by my brother-in-law. And once I was walking in the street in this little town, and an old couple, old Holocaust surviving couple, 
European couple were hobbling down the road, helping support each other. And he told me, he said, you see that couple, the first time they came into my surgery, they, they hobbled into the room and they sat down across my desk and the woman had an ulcer on her leg. And as she was moving her stocking to show me the ulcer, the husband leaned across the desk and he said, doctor, we have a sore leg. We have a sore leg. Not she or it, you know, we. A big person can identify with others at a very mature level. And if you get to that level, it doesn't matter whether you've been through addiction or not. When your child is going through a certain pain, whether you've been through that pain or not, Ali, you feel that pain. Not because you've been through it, but because you are part of that experience. And therefore, I think you make a good point when you suggest that it may be advantageous to have been through something yourself in order to identify with it, but I don't think it's necessary. You talk about gender politics or politic, political politics or whichever level of, of prejudice and, and uh, persecution you're talking about, probably some are easier than others to have. To have I must tell you my personal experience. I don't mind admitting that as a doctor, I'll admit to you quite openly that when I deal with medical issues that I've suffered myself, or, you know, whether it's, a, when I say medical issues, some, some problem I've had myself, some pain I've suffered myself, I'm much more sympathetic. <laughs> I'm much more sympathetic. When I deal with somebody who has an alcohol problem, which has never been my issue, I just get very frustrated. Now, why are you doing this to yourself? I mean, it's very hard for me to empathize. But do you think, do you, do you think that the, the reason why God chose Moses as opposed to any other Israelite, part of the lesson the Torah is teaching us is that empathy can be achieved even if you are not yourself the victim. That's, and the reason for that is we have a very interesting principle in Torah that any way a thing is in the world, it was designed to be that way. Uh, again, anything that is in the world, not by human action, anything that is in the world because God created it that way was designed that way. There are no accidents, which means Moses needed to be a person developing empathy from within Egyptian society by the way, there were other reasons he needed that too. He needed a training in royalty and dealing with kings, and uh, he needed that as well. But there's a, very deep, there's a very deep reason. He needed to draw the, people, the Jewish people out of an Egyptian reality, and he needed to deeply understand what it was and be part of that to wrench them out of it. But anyway, in summary, I would sum up by saying I think your point is cogent and valid, and I'm sure there's big advantage to be had by having been in a situation yourself. But I think for the reasons that I've argued, one can empathize very deeply and very, in a very real way, even if you've not had the particular, uh, the particular suffering that, um, that the person you're dealing with has had. Yeah. And just finally, just before we move on, I can't help but think, isn't there something a bit sad that the only way we can love others is by tapping into our own self-love? Isn't that a bit sad that we can't really, we can never, that, that self-love will always be the most powerful drive? Only let me, let me warn you against misunderstanding this concept. There's an immature way to do this in a mature way. The immature way is to tap into your own self-love in an egotistical fashion and see everyone else as an expression of your ego. That is exactly not what I'm saying. But if you tap into your own self-love as a self-respect, an understanding of the genuine depth and cosmic proportions of your own soul, again, you can be a very big person, a very accomplished person, a, a super, super accomplished person, and have total self-awareness and self-esteem of your greatness with not a shred of ego. That's totally, I, I'm not saying it's easy. The ego is a very powerful enemy. But in Judaism, we are not looking. We, we mentioned Buddhism before. Many people who have had a training in the East tell me they were taught to be nothing, to negate themselves completely. That is not the Jewish view at all. 
the Jewish view is to fan to a fever pitch every aspect of your personality and your desire and your ambition, but to kill ego completely. I'm not doing this for the childish me. And a person has achieved that. That means total view, honest, objective view of their own capacity and their own potential and their own ambitions and desires with not a shred of egotistical immaturity. And expand that to another human being? That is a genuine love. Of course, of course, Ali. As soon as they extend that to another human being, it doesn't mean they want to make the other person in their image. On the contrary, they'll respect the other person's uniqueness and specialness. And, and uh, we're not talking about an orchestra where everybody plays the same note on the same instrument. On the contrary, we're talking about the love that exists in the tension between the difference between people. Right. It's learning, it's using your understanding of your own self-respect to apply that to others. Exactly. Right, right. Okay. I want to talk now about another, we spoke about ego, uh, an another human drive uh, which uh, God has placed within every single human being and, and asks us to use in the correct way. And it's uh, the sexual drive. And it's something that I feel like I've ne never really had a deep enough understanding of why the Torah, why, well, really why God created uh, this, this uh, energy and challenge in the first place. Um, we have in Judaism a very strict sexual ethic and a belief, uh, the Torah teaches that, you know, if it's not uh, channeled in the appropriate way, then it can be very destructive. And my question is, why did God create the world in, in a way in which this was one of the most significant um, energies and tests, really, that uh, human beings uh, were placed with and we've seen how i mean we can see even forget on a you know what happens to the individual we've seen how lives have been ruined through people uh you know f just not being able to control their their sexual urges through you know having affairs or uh, underage uh, uh uh sex or whatever it is um and, but but I'm, I'm talking more on an actual, let's say, you know, you have consenting adults, let's say, um, but it's not in the way that the Torah uh, uh, defines uh, or, or permits uh, sexual relations. What, what does Judaism believe is so destructive about this? And why did God cr cr create this as a test for, for human beings to... And, you know, what's, what's really being achieved through this test? What's, what's being achieved through overcoming this? this I, think I, I think I understand your question. Yeah. This is a vast subject. We can possibly hope to cover it in this format. But I'll say a few things that may be relevant. The first is at the simplest level, God sets this up because he's very interested in this area. The reason he's very interested in this area is because it's, an, it's a bonding of total oneness. This is a self-completion. And secondly, this is the source of the continuation of the, human, of the human race. He's very interested in that. In fact, one of the things you left out in your question was the intense pleasure that can be generated in this area. And there's a very important reason for this. And uh, I'll, I'll give you the old famous way that this is put in the Father Balai Musa. They put it like this in addressing the question of why this is an area that is so tempting and generates such when I say pleasure, I mean in a very deep way. I'm not talking only about, you know, there's a, a lot of pleasure to be had from food and from uh, very other, various other methods of scratching itches. But uh, this is one that fills the libraries of the world and the, you know, the media, and this is uh, way, way out of proportion. Um, Ali, do you know what the most intense human physical pleasure is, by the way? 
scratching an itch. Okay, scratching an itch, a real itch scratch. Yeah, but nevertheless, this male female thing, yeah, it goes way way beyond that, way beyond urology and uh, and physiological functioning. And the uh, the reason for that, you asked, what is the reason God did this? So many ways to answer that, but I'll tell you this: the famous way this is put in the writings of the Balai Musa is, imagine you have a mother. She wants her child to eat. She's very interested that the child will eat his bread. The child's not so interested in bread. So the mother puts a nice thick layer of honey on the bread. Then the child eats the bread and they have a good deal. The mother's interested in the bread. The child's interested in the honey. What happens is the, the child eats the bread. The mother's prepared to put the honey on so the child eats the bread. That was a very good working arrangement. Of course, the next step is what, what, what we call a schlechterkind, a bad child. A bad child takes the bread from his mother, licks off the honey and throws away the bread. That is your picture of sexual morality today. God spreads the honey very thick in this area because it has very important consequences. This leads to your intense completion as a human being on a psychological, emotional and physical level. The physical is always a vessel for the spiritual and it's a fertile relationship. A fertile relationship. Fertile means, first of all, in the production of the love between two people is born a reality that is greater than the sum of the parts. And that fusion extends into a child, which is a fusion of the parents as well. You may hear in what I'm saying an overtone about we are why there's a spiritual damage and, and um, a spiritual negativity attached to infertile or non-fertile relationships. I don't mean a man and a woman who could not have children. I'm talking about relationships that are intrinsically impossible to have offspring, but without getting into those details. Um, and therefore, God is prepared to spread the honey very thick in this area because it's very important for the survival of the world. A good child eats the bread and the honey. So they accept the, the intimate relationships with the responsibility and the commitment and the love. And a bad child licks off the honey and throws away the bread. And that is a good summary, I think, of some of the cheap and superficial immorality of our generation, looking for the honey all the time without, uh, you know, without the, the substance. That's a superficial view of the subject. There's a much deeper mystical view, of course. The Ramban famously points out that in the union between husband and wife is the learning ground for the union between the human and God. In fact, there was a time in Jewish history where people were able to relate intimately with a focus on the spiritual bond. Today, that's a, a lost cause. Today, we, today we're satisfied if married couples are more or less functional and successful and, you know, just more or less intact, let alone reaching into the spiritual world. Almost impossible. But nevertheless, nevertheless, that is the, it is a learning ground for something much, much higher. And just like there's a bonding of minds and a bonding of emotions, it's vested in a bonding of bodies that is very, very important. I would say that's a, a basic introduction to your question. Right. But what about specific, the, the, I understand. So what you're saying is there's, it's a huge um, energy uh, that can be utilized to create deep spiritual accomplishments and growth and connection. Um, but I was equally interested in the test, the challenge. Um, is that just a natural consequence of any very strong energy that can be used for good? There's always gonna be the danger that it can be used for bad. Um, or is there something, you know, specifically being achieved in the resistance of, 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 of you know, overcoming uh, sexual tests? Like in the story of Joseph, where he overcomes the um, pressure of, of Potiphar's wife. Um, 
I was asking sort of specifically there, what is being achieved in that sort of, you know, resisting of temptations of the wrong kind of... Well, to, to understand this, we'd have to go to the question of ordeals altogether, temptations, why they need to be overcome. This is a very, very big subject. Um, but let's just pick out one point. You are quite right. The bigger a tool is, the more powerful it is, the more it can be used for good and the more it can be used for bad. It needs to be handled maturely. When a 10-year-old child asks his father for an electric drill, you know, the father's not going to give it to him because he's going to drill a hole in the cat, you know? Yeah. And uh, the more powerful your tool is when you're working with a small uh, electric current, you know, you can power a few lights and a few appliances. When you're working with the high tension lines that power a city, you can do a lot more with them. But if you get it wrong, you get fried. And there's no question about that. This is a very potent area of nuclear energy that, that, that is the key to survival of the world. What greater act could a human be do ever do in the world than create a human life? This is beyond stupendous. I mean, it's beyond human comprehension that a person could do that. And uh, that's why we focused on uh, uh, that as a core human activity. And of course, it, has, it carries the highest voltage. Right. And when, when it's misapplied, what... What it, can, can, you, can you perhaps help us understand a bit more? Misapplied, you are taking the compressed essence of what it means to be a human being and expressing that in the incorrect fashion. There's no, let's put it this way. If you could use that energy to create human life, then equally so you can use that energy to do the greatest damage in the world. And therefore, it's an area of such intense Torah regulation, right? To, uh, you know, intimacy in marriage is a very, very important part very important part of Jewish marriage, but it has to be carefully uh, clothed in, in sanctity. And therefore, we have very, very careful rules about expressing it fully and in a way that, that distinguishes us from animals. Very important that. That's why we attach such a privacy to this area, not like animals functioning in the street, in order to assert our difference by asserting this area very powerfully and in a uniquely human, with uniquely human dignity. It's also the reason why it's a pre-Messianic ordeal, because as we move through history, we move down in the spiritual body. And of course, the last part of the body is the part that generates children. The legs are extraneous to the body. And so as we move through history, we move down through the human form, and therefore the pre-Messianic ordeal will be a test in this area. And you see, it, you see how low the morals are, and the refinement is in this area, where the spiritual value has been translated into, into mere flesh. Absolutely. So finally, Rabbi Tatz, I'd like to talk to you about something that I've been thinking about myself in my own uh, Jewish learning, which is um, I see as perhaps one of the most uh, important and it's actually considered a constant mitzvah, um, constant commandment to have trust in God, to be trustworthy, to, to, to trust that everything that happens in your life is being guided uh, through God's will and to trust in him that things are going to work out. But when I read the Torah, uh, particularly uh, the book of Genesis, I look at uh, some of our forefathers, Abraham, uh, Jacob, uh, who it says they were scared at some, some moments. They had fear. And I just wondered for the spiritual greats, how do we make sense of the fact that they were fearful when presumably if anyone has faith in God, it's going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, this is a wonderful question, a sophisticated question. Good observation, Ollie, and uh, it deserves a full answer. 
I can only give you a sketch of outline to this question and perhaps give you references for a deeper, deeper study. There are many ways to answer your question, but I'll, I'll choose one which I hope you'll find meaningful. Let me begin with an introduction. The brief, the brief introduction I would like to, to, to posit here is that bitachon, which is trust in God, does not mean believing that things will be good. Let's get that clear. The, the simple, uneducated view of bitachon, or trust in God, is trusting that things will be good. Right? You believe enough and you trust enough, it will be good. That is completely wrong. That is completely and utterly wrong. The classic source for this, although there are many, is the famous Chazanish. The Chazanish, who died in 1954, wrote a classic work in this area. It's known as, the, the work is known as Imon and Bitochon. And the very first section of that book, he makes this point. He says, many people think that Bitochon means trusting that things will be good. That's completely wrong. Things will not necessarily be good. Bitochon means that whatever happens, happens from God. Let me say that again. Bitochon means trusting that whatever happens to you comes from God and is measured correctly and what needs and is meant to be. It does not mean whatever comes will be good, by no means. He adds with an addendum, which is fascinating, which is not a subject to discuss now, and that is if you trust deeply enough, it will indeed be good. If you trust deeply enough, that means you are so totally dependent on God, so intensely sealed into him, so to speak, with your relationship, then whatever you believe will be what happens. Now, this is an amazing subject, way beyond our level. In fact, there's a fascinating discussion among the latter authorities. How big do you have to be to get to that level? Can you, do you need to be like King David, or can you merely be like one of the authors of the Mishnah? You know, how big do you have to be to get to that level where you can? But this is a clear, a clear thing. The Talmud puts it in the most extreme and bizarre fashion. And I, I won't attempt to explain this. I'll just throw it out there for your viewers to, to grapple with, and, and I hope it actually keeps them up all night. But here's what the Talmud says. Believe it or not, here's a person about to commit a robbery. This is bizarre as it gets. Here's a person about to commit a robbery. He stands outside the house, he's about to break into and burgle, and he firmly commits his belief in God that God will help him in this robbery. That means he totally trusts with genuine, total, prophetic level trust that it will go well. God will make sure the robbery succeeds. (laughs) The concept being, if you rely on him, he will not let you down. Now, that needs a lot of thought, a lot of explanation. But let's come down to the normal human level. Says the Chazanish that bitochon, trust in God, does not mean it will be the way you want or good. It simply means that knowing that things are not random. That's what trust means, that your hand is held in a bigger hand, and whatever happens is being conducted by that ashkocha, that imminence, and that divine providence. Believe me, that's a big level to get to. But it's childish to think that if you, that you will it to be good, it will be good. That is certainly not, when I say good, I mean in the immediate sense, everything's good in the long term, but the way you will experience it being good now. That's a very important introduction. Let me move to answer your question more directly, having laid that down as, a, as an example. And please note, what I'm about to tell you is only one avenue of access to your question. It's only one dimension. This should not be thought of as the total answer, but it's a very important beginning, and all I can do is point the direction. You are quite correct that our forefathers were very anxious in certain situations. Very anxious. When Yaakov Jacob was about to meet his brother Esau, he was very afraid, as the Torah says, and made all sorts of preparation to appease him and an extreme prayer 
and, and a preparation for war in case, in case Esau would attack him. When Yaakov dealt with Lavon, he was very anxious. He had to escape uh, to get around Lavon's defenses. He took, there are endless or many examples of our forefathers, in fact, manifesting great fear. However, let me point out to you that the question is even worse than that. Stay with me carefully. Not only do they manifest fear in those situations, the background is that they faced other life difficulties with no trepidation at all. It's not only that they manifested fear there, they contradicted themselves. Let me give you this example. Here's Jacob, here's Yaakov. This Yaakov who's in abject fear of his brother Esau, who might attack him and kill him. This is the Jacob who left his father's house and says about himself that I wandered into the wilderness with only my staff. Only my staff. No friends, no army, no bodyguards, no weapons, nothing. And he ends up on a lonely mountaintop where there are hungry mountain lions. Okay, not a flicker of fear. He's aware that he has to do something to defend himself. Something. So he assembles 12 stones around his head when he goes to sleep that night. That's the amount of effort he finds necessary. You know, Ollie, picture the hungry mountain lions approaching him while he's sleeping. You know, here's a, here's a victim that we can eat. Uh, and they see 12, star, 12 stones. No, no, that we couldn't. No, that's beyond that. 12 stones. No, you know, barbed wire fence maybe, but 12. What is going on? Yaakov knows that all it takes is a token effort. The rest is done by God. You have to make an effort. That's clear. You have to put stones around. You have to do something. But this is the man who is so unafraid that he sleeps in the open with lethal animals all around him with such trust in God that all he needs is the merest token of an effort. And this is the man that when he meets his brother Esav, is in abject fear. So when we expand your question, you'll see that there's a contradiction in their, own, in their own behavior. And let me point out one very, very interesting and important resolution of this question. And again, I, I, I say clearly this is not a full answer, but it's a very worthwhile direction for research. The real answer to your question, the deep, the full answer, requires an understanding of which divine promises can be changed and which cannot be changed. When, when these great people, right, when, when God says to Jacob, I will protect you, I will protect you, a divine promise of protection. doesn't get better than that. So on the one hand, there's a divine promise. On the other hand, then why are you afraid of your brother? God told you he'd protect you. Okay, so we need to discuss which divine promises or prophecies can be changed, which are conditional and which are not. There are many elements to this question, but I want to pick out just one and finish with that. Note carefully the great forefathers of the Jewish people that you mentioned in your question and note carefully where they were afraid. And you'll notice it was always in interaction with another human being. When it comes to hungry mountain lions, not a moment's fear. Not a flicker of emotion. When it comes to a human being like his brother, reason for fear. When it comes to the same Yaakov, and it's a love on, reason for fear. And you find this theme repeated throughout the Torah. There are so many examples. Here, I'll give you one. I'll give you one. If you look in the, in the book of Daniel, and you see that when Hananya, Mishal, and Nazari were thrown into the furnace, thrown into a furnace and survived miraculously, walking around quite comfortable in the fire, what people don't know is the next few verses say that when the king, when it was time to exit the fire, they were afraid. Exit the fire, they were afraid, in case the king would kill them. <laughs> These are people they have just been thrown into a fire, and they've seen God's salvation miraculously. They're totally comfortable walking around in a blast furnace. But when they have to come out, 
they're afraid. Maybe this king will injure them. In fact, the verses say they waited till he assured them that he was not going to harm them. What is going on? What is going on? I'll give you another example. These are all pointed out by the Nitziv and other great commentaries. Here's another one. Also in the days of Daniel, Daniel was accused by his co-courtiers. Um, you know, he was an advisor to the king, whether it was Koresh or Darius, whichever the king was at the time, but the king of the Persian Empire. And the non-Jewish uh, associates of Daniel accused the king, accused him to the king of being disloyal. The king said, I think you're wrong. He's a loyal servant. He's my advisor. But in deference to your fears, you know what I'll do? I'll throw me to a den of hungry lions and see what happens. My understanding is he is such a spiritual giant, he'll be protected miraculously like his friends were protected in the furnace. If I'm right, you'll see. If I'm wrong, he'll be devoured by the lions. And you know the famous story, Daniel was put into the lion's den, and not only didn't they eat him, they licked his feet, and you know, miraculously. But read the next verse. The next verse says that the king sealed the mouth of the lion's den after throwing Daniel in because he was concerned that his human enemies might come up to the place and kill him with their spears or their arrows and then say that the lions ate him. Which means the king had no qualms about exposing Daniel to hungry lions, but was worried that human beings, despite that divine protection, might be able to kill him. This is a theme that is repeated throughout Torah. In other words, you are more vulnerable by far when it comes to human beings than when it comes to non-human agents. You know, the famous proof of this, of course, is that when the brothers threw Joseph into the pit, right, as the famous Orachim explains, they threw the brothers, the brothers threw Joseph into the pit rather than harm him themselves, because they were aware that when a human being tries to harm someone else, there's almost unlimited ability, almost unlimited, great latitude in how much you might harm someone, whether he deserves it or not. But no self-respecting snake or scorpion is going to touch anyone unless that's decreed from God, because a snake or a scorpion has got no free will. And this theme is repeated time and again. I'll give you one more example. Here's one more example. In Tachanun, daily, we say, by Yermin David al-Gad, David said to God, Nipla nabiyad Hashem, let us fall into God's hand, kirabim rachamav, because his mercy is very great. Ubiyat adam alepola, let me not fall into human hand. What's the background to this statement? God said to David, you've guilty and you need to suffer. You and your people need to suffer. I give you three options, David. Choose your suffering. You can have a plague, epidemic, among your people, or a famine for you and your people, or a war. I give you three options. Which would you like? And David said, I choose to fall into God's hand, not into human hand. Human hand means a war. God's hand means a famine or a plague. Why he chose the plague over the famine is a side point. I don't want to get into that now. But the point is, let's, let's eliminate that for now. There was the choice between a plague, an epidemic, or a war. David said, I'll choose the epidemic. Why? Because that comes from you and it'll be merciful. There's no trusting a Philistine soldier. In case you think whatever happens to you comes directly from God? No. If that's true, flip a coin. Every, every bullet has your name on. Every Philistine sword has your name on. You're not going to get what's not coming to you. No. David said, God, I'll deal with you. With you, I can trust I'll get what I deserve. But a human being could harm me more than I deserve. There's no trusting a Philistine soldier. By the way, do you know that the Hassan Sofer actually rules this into practice? Do you know that? Amazing. Hassan Sofer says, let's say you're stranded in a dangerous situation and you have to escape. You're caught in some far-flung place and there's great danger to your life and you have to escape. And you have two possible routes of escape. 
One is through a war zone, and one is through an epidemic zone. <laughs> Says the Chassam Sofer, all else equal, take the disease. Because we learned it from King David. Because in the epidemic, you'll only get no self-respecting microbe and no self-respecting coronavirus is going to touch you, right? Unless it's been ordained because it's got no free will. But go through a war zone where humans might attack you, there's no telling what could happen. Now, this is a massive subject and it's a very scary subject that humans could put you in a situation of danger in which you might be harmed more than God would have done otherwise. Very scary subject. But if you'd like to understand it more fully, read my book, Will, Freedom, and Destiny, which has a detailed chapter on all the sources in Jewish literature that explain how, in fact, I'm just doing that book in Hebrew now. I hope in a few weeks it'll be out. And not only that, in the Hebrew book, I, uh, the way I'm writing the book is the first half is a translation of my English book, and the second half is all the primary sources actually printed out. Oh, wow. So you wow. can actually read the Orachayim, and I have some rare sources that are hard to find. I'll print them in the book. So when that book comes out, Oli, please ask your viewers to buy two copies each so they understand it very well. Ra- Rabbi, I, I must ask, I, I, because at the time of Purim a few months ago, I had a fantastic talk um, where they were trying to, the rabbi was explaining that one of the key messages of the story of Purim is that no matter what human beings may try to do, God even, you know, puts the, it says the king put the ring on Haman's finger and the king is, is, a, is a metaphor for, implies God. To me, it seemed like he was saying one of the key messages of this, no matter what, hum, you know, hum, it's ultimately all human folly because whatever Haman tried to do, ultimately God would make sure so that the, the Jews would. This is a great question and it's a good point to end if you, if you don't mind. You're quite correct. And let's sum up with this point because it's a very important point to remember. Although human beings are more dangerous than non-human agencies and human beings indeed could put you in danger, that would not have happened otherwise. At the end of the day, what happens there is up to God. Let's not forget that. When a human being, when the Persians put you in danger, or the brothers, no matter what happens to you, whether it's by human or non-human agency, God signs off on it. Let me, let me be clear about this. And what's the difference? Let, I, I, I'll explain. I'll explain. Again, this needs a long explanation. It's a very sensitive point and badly misunderstood in the Jewish world. But I'll try to make it as clear as I can in a nutshell, a small nutshell. When somebody's walking down the street with no divine decree to die, no divine decree to die, as Arachim says, and then someone tries to kill him, at that moment someone turns the corner and pulls a gun and tries to shoot him, God was not going to kill the person at that point. There was no, of course, it might be a, a circumstance in which there is a divine decree and the person's going to die no matter what. That's certainly possible. But it's also possible that there's no divine decree. When the person pulls the gun, God looks down at that person and says, are you worth saving? Do you deserve intervention? Do you deserve miraculous intervention? If you deserve it, you'll get it. Let's take a classic example. You said Purim. You've chosen the classical example. Mordechai knew that he was impervious to Haman. He could not be touched. He had enough personal merit that no matter what Haman did, he could not be touched by him. So he used it. He sat in front of Haman and refused to get up and to bow down to him plan being to drive Haman into such an anti-Semitic frenzy that he would self-destruct. But Oli, that's a very dangerous game. A very dangerous game. The principle governing Jewish history, post-prophetic history, Eretz Nitna Biyad Rosha, the world is given into the hands of the wicked, in case you hadn't noticed. The world is given into the hands of the wicked. You don't interfere with them. You don't use a full frontal attack. The shoe's on their foot. 
You use strategy and intelligence. But Mordechai knew he was impervious. And if you're at that level of protection, it doesn't matter what agency is ranged against you. Human or animal makes no difference. At the end of the day, God signs off on it. But what if you don't deserve that protection? What if you got a vulnerability? What if Joseph had indeed something that made him vulnerable? And then a human being points a gun at you. You need more merit to be protected from a human than you need to be protected from a microbe or from, a, from an animal. That's the point. But at the end of the day, God resigns off on what happens. No random stuff in the world. When the person points the gun at that individual, God looks down and says, do you deserve to be saved? Or does your wife deserve not to be a widow today? Mm -hmm. That could be her merit. Indeed, I'll leave you with a humorous take on this. Some people refuse to buy life insurance. And I'll tell you why. Let me hasten to say that life insurance is very important. My son Mosh sells it and you should see him tomorrow. It's <laughs> very important. Life insurance is very important. That is Jewishly a very good idea. But some people say, well, if I have life insurance, you know what it means? If this person's walking down the street with no life insurance policy and someone tries to kill him, God's going to look down and say, you don't deserve to be saved. But you know, your wife, she doesn't deserve to be a widow. And so God might save you. But if you're walking down the street, you've got a hundred million pound life insurance policy and somebody tries to kill you, God could look down and say, hmm, your wife's okay. And some wives are probably better off. I hate to say it, but that's probably true. And therefore, here's the strategy. Make yourself so indispensable to so many poor people, single-handedly support so many poor families, that when somebody turns the corner and tries to kill you, God's going to look down and say, you know what, it's just too complicated. I'll put up with you in the world a little longer because... <laughs> so it's not the highest motivation for stocker, but it's kosher. In other words, bottom line, Human beings are more dangerous than non-human agency. Our forefathers were afraid of human threats because you need miraculous merit. You need to be graded to be protected from a Haman or a Bilam or, a, or a, uh, an Asaph. That takes more spiritual protection. You're more vulnerable to them. When you cross the Jordan with these thing and hungry lions and all that stuff, you'll get exactly what God has decided. But when a human puts you, this is exactly parallel to the Talmud that says you should not put yourself in danger. The Talmud says, don't walk into a dangerous place. Don't walk under a leaning wall or a shaky ladder. Why? Because when you put yourself in a situation of danger, the books are opened. And God says, does this person deserve to be saved? But I'm telling you that another person could put a different person in a situation of danger. And in that circumstance, the message is humans are more dangerous than non-human agencies. Of course, even in human danger, there's a divine calculation that needs to be made. We're not saying things happen by accident. But you're more vulnerable to humans, and that's a beginning of answer to your question of why our great forefathers were much more concerned when it came to human enemies, especially those who had merit. Yaakov knew that Esau had excelled in honoring his father. Okay, you know, he knew that there were great merits arranged against him on the other side. Do I deserve to be protected against that? That is an introduction to the subject, but it needs a lot more discussion. I've, I've learned that there was a, that the Rabbi Kiva and other rabbis encouraged Jewish people to say Gamzu Latova that when things happen to them in life, this will be for the good. And I understand that you said that, you know, even the others were, were worried about what was happening to them, uh, that maybe they wouldn't have the merit. Aren't we, st you said we're meant to say everything is from God and ultimately things will be for the best at the end of history. What are we meant to say in ev when everything happens to us in life, this is for the best and what does, what does that mean? Well, very briefly, when you say Gamzulatova, you mean when God does things to you, you should say it's for the good. When God does things, by the way, the story of Akiva happened to be human beings, but they were a, more, a, 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 night, a night band of marauders 
they weren't targeting him specifically. In other words, they were moving towards the town. Anything they saw, they would have taken, and anyone in their way would have been disposed of. So that's not, that, that's not, that is not what we mean by a human threat. Human threat means a targeted, specific attack on an individual. That's what the Alshik says. So when things happen to you at God's hand, you say this is for the good. When you get ill, through no fault of your own, you say this is litoiva, this will have a good, this is for a good reason. This does not apply to you making yourself ill. Okay? If you are unhealthy, uh, you're smoking, you're overweight, you're doing something dangerous, and then you get harmed, you don't say gamza litoiva. You say, no, I was an idiot. But let's be clear about that. Gamza litoiva is when God does things to you where you do not ostensibly deserve them. You've not done something irresponsible. Okay? And something turns out to be the case of completely what we call an act of God. The mature response to that is this is bad. This is painful. Okay, I acknowledge that. But it will be for good. There's a reason that he's doing this to me. Either I'm suffering for the generation or it's, it's refining my spiritual rough edges. Or, you know, Oli, the Ramchal, maybe next time we meet we can talk about this. In the Derech Hashem, the Ramchal does something beyond stupendous. He lists the 12 reasons for why things happen in the world. 12 and only 12, and he tells you what they are. Now, unfortunately, he doesn't tell you which of those reasons applies to you in any given situation. That takes insight, and it takes Torah insight. But there are 12 reasons, and he lists them for why things happen in the world. Punishment is only one of them. There are many reasons that things happen in the world. Spiritual refinement, Gilgulim, that means a, 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 a leftover from previous, previous lives. It could be suffering for other people. There are many, many reasons, 12 reasons why things happen in the world. And it's not necessarily easy to identify which one. But if it happens to you because God put you in the situation, he generated this illness and no accountability of your own. It's a genetic thing or it's a, then you say, Gamza Latob, absolutely. That a well-adjusted person acknowledges the pain and the suffering, makes the correct uh, practical, takes the correct practical steps and understands that if God did it, he knows what he's doing. That's what it means to be well-adjusted. But you have to understand it has its limits. You don't say that when you do something silly and, and, and harm yourself, then you don't say gamza litova. But, but if a human being curses me, do I say gamza litova? Someone upsets me? So let me, let me give you the answer of the Chinuch. The Chinuch says this. Even if it was the person's malicious motivation, even if it was, like I said, a human being can harm you, curse you, beyond what you indeed deserve. A mature person says, an immature person lashes out and blames them. A mature person takes the correct defensive action and appropriates blame appropriately, uh, applies blame appropriately, not to the extent of revenge, that's going too far, and then looks inward and says, I must have needed this. And had I not needed it, I would have been protected because God signed off on it. And therefore, when King David was cursed, as you know, Shimei ben Gary cursed him, right? He said to his soldiers, don't touch him. Don't touch him. God gave him permission. And if he's doing this to me, there's a benefit that I can gain. And he had very specific benefits in mind. So a well-adjusted person, instead of saying that, you know, why is your spouse doing this to you? And how could God do this to me? And why did I deserve to marry a woman like that who rides a broomstick at midnight, you know, and all that kind of stuff? No, a mature individual says, this was given to me. I must need it. How can I grow from the situation? Absolutely. Thank well, you for this opportunity to speak to you on your channel. I wish you... The greatest of success is always a, a pleasure to do. If you, if you honor me by asking me again, I'll be very happy to do that.
Amen. And Rabbi, thank you. Honestly, it really is a genuine, genuine honor to be able to speak with you and to broadcast your uh, words of wisdom to our audience. So thank you so much. And uh, until next time. Thank you for joining us today and listening to JTV Podcasts. You can find more podcasts from JTV, including interviews with Rabbi Manus Friedman, Dennis Prager, Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tatz, and many more, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Just search for JTV Podcasts with Oli Hannesfeld. Don't forget to subscribe on the JTV YouTube channel for hundreds of videos on Jewish philosophy, Israel, Jewish wisdom, and much, much more. Please consider supporting us so we can continue to grow. Just visit paypal.me forward slash JTV channel. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.